All right, welcome. Uh, thank you for choosing to come in here on time. It's good to see your faces here and present, and then the rest of the people will show up uh, after they're done doing whatever they're doing. So tonight we are uh, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, we're going to go the rest of what we call chapter 6. So part of what tonight is going to feel like is very familiar and uh, routine, so hopefully we can come at it with some freshness, or maybe it's, it's like uh, watching an old, one of your favorite movies. You know what's coming and you just enjoy watching it anyways. Um, I guess you can decide later. So let's pray and then we'll uh, refresh and get into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come tonight uh, before you and into your presence, seeking your wisdom, seeking your uh, spirit. We just ask that you would uh, move in us tonight and move among us, be with our time, uh, help us to not only hear uh, from you, but also to be ready and willing to respond, uh, not just as we walk out of this door, but also as we wake uh, each and every morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully that wasn't too long and didn't have too many empty, superfluous words. Uh, so if you remember last week, we were uh, talking about, we moved, uh, transitioned from these you have herds uh, in the Sermon on the Mount into uh, when you do this. That was what we ended with uh, last week when we were talking about the needy. So when you give to the needy, with this implication that, that these things are happening or these things will happen. So we're going to get some more of that, and then we're going to transition into another kind of subsection within the Sermon on the Mount, which has different uh, themes. But you'll see we're going to get a couple of the when you do these things, really behavioral instructions uh, on some things that, that the first uh, hearers would have already been doing. And so we want to make sure we're aware of, of that reality. So he says, and when you pray, oh, that was the other thing is, if you remember back at the end of uh, the last verse, verse four, uh, talking about this idea of God seeing what we do in secret and, and the reward thing. Uh, verse 5, and, w- and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that you have received, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to their lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider all the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Okay. So, again, he continues. Jesus is continuing in this teaching, and he is instructing uh, his disciples about... It's just like magic. You read the word of God and people multiply. Just like, there you go. Voila. I have to tell you, last night, so we're getting ready for the sleep out, for the shelter, and uh, there was, Father Miller was there, and so he was going to pray for us, and he said, I know this is going to seem very un-Catholic of me, but I'm going to read the Bible. (laughs) Uh, I can say that because he said that, and I'm quoting him, making fun of himself. So, um, so there's this idea that the people are already praying. So he's giving them instruction, not this new thing on what they are to do, but how they are to do it in a new way. Now, the challenge in this is we can come around this and say, aha, Jesus tells us that we should not pray in public. So next time you go out to eat with your, and your kids are there, and you're like, let's pray, they're like, uh-huh, no, no, Jesus said, you shall pray in secret. Touche, mom and dad. 
Well, we know that the Jews uh, would have had daily prayers that took place throughout their calendar. And so what Jesus is trying to communicate is don't plan your day so that when it's time to pray, you're in public so that you can show how religious you are. So it's not that he is arguing against public prayer. It's the posture in which we are praying. So why are we praying in public? Are we praying in public so that people will look at us and say, oh, wow, those people must be really, really devout followers of Christ because they're praying at this restaurant or wherever it may be. The other thing is, you know, we have all of these various conceptions of what prayer is, how prayer functions, and we could spend days, weeks talking about the importance of prayer and how prayer functions and what prayer is and, and some suggestions on how to pray. And so we really can't delve into all the intricacies of what prayer is, so we're kind of, in some ways, glossing over this. The point that Jesus is trying to make is, the things that he is discussing, okay, there's three of them here, fasting, or he's talking about giving to the needy, praying, and fasting, they are to be secretive type experiences. They are to be intimate expressions of faith. They are not to be done in a way to self-aggrandize within the public sphere. So there's this theme that he is grouping together within the Sermon on the Mount, and one of those the main theme is don't try to make oneself look better than you are. And that is oftentimes what we overmiss, what we miss. And I know we have to ask the question, because we asked the question last week, what is this reward? I mean, what's the deal with God rewarding us? Still not sure. Although somebody pointed out when I taught this last, I said, peace and comfort. I think that's what, that's what I said. I didn't check the tape. That was what was written down. Sounds pretty good. The assurance that God is hearing us. Then he goes on and he, and he talks a little bit further and he distinguishes between those who pray as hypocrites and those who pray as followers of his. Again, this isn't to say that we shouldn't be praying in public. It's how are we praying? What is the point of our prayer, and what are we trying to do through our praying in the public sphere? If we're trying to make some grandiose point through our eloquent prayer, Probably not the right idea. He talks about uh, excessive words and, and all of these things, trying to make oneself look better. Now, what is too many words in a prayer? <laughs> if we're asking that question, we probably don't need to know the answer because if we're checking ourselves in that way, that's not the point. The point, again, is that God sees what we're doing and we do it 
out of a communicative act between us and God. That is what prayer is. Communication between us and God, and God and us. So, don't be like a Gentile and say many words. I can just see it now. On Sunday, one of you is going to nudge your spouse or the person sitting next to you and say, that was kind of a Gentile prayer, wasn't it? (laughs) I know you'll be judging the words that I use when I pray after the announcements, so I'll try and keep it at an appropriate number of words. Then we get into um, this, what I'm describing as, for some of us, a comfortable sweatshirt. What do you think of when you think of this phrase or word, liturgy? Because for some of us, our experience with liturgical expressions of faith um, has been less than productive or less than enjoyable. And so when we come to things like the Lord's Prayer, it produces all sorts of things in us. And then we have these visceral reactions to, well, the people that pray the Lord's Prayer, those people aren't true, you know, intimately connected to God. They're just saying words. They're just rote memorization. And so to recite a prayer like the Lord's Prayer or to, to participate in, in the liturgical calendar is, is not, not very thoughtful. It's just going through the motions. Saying the creeds is just, again, going through the motions. And so we shouldn't do any of that. Then there's the other side of the spectrum that that has great value because As soon as you hear the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, you are transported to a place of comfort and reflection because the Lord's Prayer functioned within your faith journey as something that was reassuring, that was predictable, that was the same. Much like all of the many other traditions that we have in our lives that we certainly don't look down our noses at. If you put up your Christmas tree, which many of us aren't because John said it's a pagan thing to do, I still am, the day after Thanksgiving, every single year, you don't say, oh, just going through the motions, boring, not even heartfelt, put up the same ornaments every year, boring. So then why is it when we look at church tradition, we have this negative reaction to it. Because Jesus is giving his disciples and us what I want to contend is not a verbatim prayer that we are to recite alone. Because notice what he says. He doesn't say, in the beginning of verse 9, he doesn't say, pray then these words. See that? He says, pray like this. So he gives us sort of a scaffolding for a a prayer. When you go to God in prayer, here's a rough sketch 
of some things that you can uh, talk to God about. And it starts with the acknowledgement of who God is in this corporate fatherliness. And if you remember back to the whole genealogy thing and then Jesus' baptism and, and God says, declares that God is Jesus' father, now we get to declare the same thing. So Jesus says, when you pray, go to our collective father who is so far above us, he exists in the heavenly realms. Which I would love to get into this conversation about what heaven is. I mean, we know it's for real because somebody wrote a book about it. Um, but ancient cosmology is much different than what we think of it is. But God is transcendent. Our Father is transcendent. He's in heaven. And his name is holy. So spending some time talking about the holiness of God's name in and of itself. And then inviting God's kingdom to be present in our lives and on this earth. Now for many of us, depending on the tradition that we've grown up in or maybe the particular things that we've read, we have a very escapist mentality about this place that's called earth. That Jesus doesn't necessarily have. Because the prayer isn't, your kingdom come when we get to heaven. It's about the kingdom of God breaking into the earthly realm. And so praying that God would bring about his kingdom and the transformation of his kingdom into this kingdom, into this earth which is all the things we've been talking about, all these different ramifications of how we live and what that looks like, that God's will would be done. Not only here, but in the exact way that it is done where God is residing. Now, one thing that is, can get us slightly askew is why is it that Jesus is instructing us that God's will would be done? There is an implication that God's will might not be done. That God's will is something we need to pray takes place, the implication being that there's an option that it doesn't take place, i.e., the flourishing of evil in this earth. And then he goes into the second category in this prayer. Notice we haven't asked God for anything in this top formula. No requests. Okay, and if you've taken experience in God, you've been through, tried to walk through the, the impossible journey that some people feel, of praying without asking God for one thing. Anyone suffered through that? Cursing Tom? What do you mean I can't ask God for anything? Well, don't lose heart. Jesus says we can. <laughs> he says, give us today the things that we need 
for tomorrow, which is an interesting phrase, interesting turn of the Greek phrase that the English misses. Provide for us the necessities of sustenance that we need for today. And grant us the forgiveness of the wrongs that we have committed. In what way? As we choose to forgive those who have wronged us. Notice those two things are connected together. And we're going to get into that in a little bit deeper way. And then, I knew Sarah had to be here tonight. You weren't here last week, and I was like, she'll be here for the Lord's Prayer, because she's like, I made this brilliant revelation that is going to transform everything and lead us not into testing Jesus reflecting on his temptation or his testing and saying, you aren't necessarily interested in going through that, so ask God that that might not be the case. Which is a, I've just thought about that so many times. Like, Jesus' words are from his own experience. So this is not some just like, it's like you get on the plane and you immediately tune out the stewardess or the flight attendant, sorry. Like, yeah, I've heard this before. You know the part about like saving your life in the case this thing goes down? It's kind of important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put your mask on first, then help the next. Year. And deliver us from evil. And notice the contrast between this testing and this deliverance. So don't take us to this place of testing. Actually remove us from evil or from the evil one. So again, for many of us, we can come to the Lord's Prayer and it becomes, it feels so rote and routine. And at times, we're, it's because we're doing it wrong. <laughs> yes, the words are there but they're, they're a skeleton, they're a scaffolding that we are to then fill in around. It's like when you used to get the, uh, the dot to dot when you were a little kid, and the dots are there, and so then you fill in the dots, and you, you fill out the picture or the, the paint by number that you would like then paint in, and you felt like you were an artist because you like all the 16s you colored in fuchsia. The Lord's Prayer in some ways is this like color paint by number in which then we fill in the rest of what is there. So the thing I want us to do this week in the spiritual discipline side of things is to really sit with the Lord's Prayer. And so it's just a 10-minute exercise. You're going to read out loud one line. And I really encourage you to not just do this by memory, to open up the Word, go to Matthew chapter 6, read the first line, and then just sit there for a minute and just kind of let that roll around in your head and then move on, and then in 10 minutes you'll have uh, worked through this every day. And if only Jesus were to stop there. (laughs) Yes? Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah, so the for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, and amen. Is that an add-on? Yes. Uh, and the, it's a church add-on, early enough church add-on that has lasted throughout church history as you know, the nice signature. And the, the premise is, well, we can't end a prayer with evil. <laughs> so we got to end on a high note. <laughs> and, and in some ways, when you look at the tradition, even the tradition of lament, you, you end on this high note acknowledging the power of God and the glory of God no matter what else happens. So that, yeah, it's a, a church tradition thing. It's fascinating how many things were like, can I swear that's in the Bible? Nope, not in the Bible. So then he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That sounds good. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. Oof. Jesus makes this declarative statement that if we choose unforgiveness in worldly relationships, our forgiveness from God is in a compromised state. So if we deem that someone in our lives is unforgivable, we are placing ourselves in a very precarious position. And I know, I know, we walk down this road of all the terrible things that people have done. And all the terrible things that people have done to us. And, and how could we forgive this person? Right. Right. And as we, as we parse this out a little bit, we can soften it in an interpretive way by saying unforgiveness in our hearts creates a calcification. And if we think back to the Old Testament, the number one thing that is said against the, the people that are against God is that their hearts are hard, not supple, unwilling to receive unable to receive. And so when we choose unforgiveness in an earthly relationship, we choose the calcification of our heart that puts us in a dangerous position. And you don't have to be a cardiologist to know that the hardening of any part of your heart is not a good thing. Whether uh, metaphorically or in reality. And so 
if forgiveness of others is an extremely high standard that, that Jesus is laying out for his followers, then we really have to dig into what does forgiveness mean? And I've said this, I don't know how many times, probably less than 100, but more than 20. Forgiveness does not necessitate reconciliation. Forgiveness is a choice by an individual to another individual, whether that individual has asked for it or will receive it. Reconciliation is the bringing back together of that relationship. Not all relationships need to be reconciled. All wrongs need to be forgiven. Yes. Do you offer forgiveness or do you wait for someone to ask for your forgiveness? Yeah, so you, by you offering the forgiveness, you're acknowledging your role in this situation. Sure. Jesus doesn't say, if you forgive those who ask for forgiveness and that are worthy of the forgiveness, then God will forgive you. So the onus of the forgiveness is on the one who has been offended, whether or not the forgiveness is requested. And again, we could go through six weeks of an hour and a half each night on forgiveness uh, because it is so important. I mean, look at the categories of the things that Jesus finds of utmost importance in the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about anger and murder and lust and adultery and, and retaliation and loving our enemies and giving to the needy and forgiving. So all of these things all fit together as those that identify as followers of Jesus Christ. Because to withhold forgiveness, and it, you know, we've said this quote many times before, it's Nelson Mandela, to withhold forgiveness is like drinking poison hoping the other person will die. To, to paraphrase the words of Jesus, to withhold forgiveness is to harden one's heart. And then he goes on and talks about fasting. You're like, such an easy topic. But again, the implication is these people are already fasting. And, and we have chosen that we have somehow moved beyond the need to fast, unfortunately, as a spiritual practice and what Jesus is getting at is do not make the spiritual practice or the spiritual disciplines in which you participate in some show of how wonderful and amazing you are. 
before God. Don't walk around moping and, you know, complaining about your one's devotion to God is the premise of this. You know, wash your face. Act like nothing is going on. So when you choose to serve God, when one chooses to dedicate something to God, don't make a big show of it in the giving to the needy. Don't make a big show of it in the praying to God. And don't make a big show of it by walking around like, oh, gee, I wonder what's wrong with him. Oh, man, I've been fasting for the Lord. Oh, haven't eaten in 12 hours. Oof. Wow, you're really committed. And then he kind of shifts gears and he talks about this concept of laying up uh, treasures in heaven. How do we do that? It's stored next to our rewards, I guess. But he says these things to get at the heart of who we are and that the things of this world are not to capture our hearts. You know, he uses these phrases that, that we all are very well, or most of us are well acquainted with. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or to translate differently, for where your current obsession is, there goes all your energy. I mean, hypothetically speaking, if I was talking about myself. Do you know there's 1.9 billion square feet of storage space in the United States of America? We looked it up. 1.9 billion square feet of storage space for physical objects that no one is currently using. I think it does. I mean, just drive around here. You're like, what is all this stuff for? Or the best part is, you know, you. It, let's not do it on, a, on like a, a a thing that hits really close to home. Um, hmm. We'll just talk about it more hypothetically. Like, let's say, uh, let's say you get like a really good meal, and you decide, like, okay, I'm going to save the rest of this. So you take it home, you put it in the fridge, you put, do not touch, God will smite you. You slide it to the back of the fridge. Three days later, somebody comes by, and they're like, oh, wonder, okay, yeah, I'm not going to eat that. One week later, somebody comes by, and Yep, that's still there. And you open it, and it's now a science experiment of the local yeast that exists within your refrigerator. You're like, why didn't you eat that? I would have ate that. Well, I forgot it. I mean, hypothetically speaking. (laughs) 
that amount of storage space would have enough space for all the homeless. I, I certainly don't doubt that. We live in a consumeristic, capitalistic society. That's no shock to anyone. The question that we have to ask ourselves is what is driving us? What is moving our hearts or what is drawing our hearts forward? And, and I know Shane Claiborne, God bless him, he would say this means you just go sell all your stuff and don't own anything. And I, I'm not, right, I slept outside last night. I'm not there yet. Like a bed is kind of a good thing. Like a bed is a good thing. And I know we talked about this last week, and we have this fabulous building because of the generosity of the people at Timberwood Church, those who have been before us, those who are here now. The question becomes, again, as we encounter Scripture, what is driving us? So we bump into this Words of Jesus that we are not to garner and gather possessions in this life. Things. Stuff. And the world says, you've earned it. You deserve it. This is, this is what life is about. And so at the collision of these two things, we have real life. And so what do we do with that? And I like stuff. I love stuff. I love having stuff. But when the words of Jesus come in and say, do not store up treasures, possessions, things on this earth. What do we do with that? He's going to give me some of it. Yeah, I mean, right, the, the classic, if, you, if, you, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you a fur coat, but not a real fur coat, because that's cruel. That's a song, it's not a polemic against fur. Because um, then he goes on, and he doesn't just end there, because he doesn't just say, sell all your stuff. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Meaning, what we choose to see is what often drives our whole selves. And if our sight is healthy, meaning if we have the eyes of Christ, then our whole body will be healthy. 
But if we don't, then there's darkness, meaning the opposite of light. So, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the, the question really at the heart of this is, how do we view possessions? How do we view anything in this world? Because if we remember all the way back to when we were talking about you know, things like anger and lust and plucking out our eyes and the whole eye patch thing and you know, amputating our arms, Jesus is taking that same imagery and pulling it forward and saying, when we see something, how are we seeing it? And are we allowing the things that we see, i.e. possessions, to draw our hearts closer to God or further away from God? And so when we see with the eye of Christ, we see an appropriate representation of what these things are and how they function. Because we have a lot of stuff. And we have a lot of money. We have loads of money. Like, loads upon loads of money. And, and I know we... Well, what about our kids? And what about our grandkids? What about our great... Those are all wonderful questions that that we have to wrestle with when we come to this text. Because 401ks and stock markets and all those things didn't exist, right? So, so we just say, well, Jesus didn't know about the value of a 401k. Otherwise, he would have said, store up 10% in a 401k for now and the rest in heaven. It's how do we view our stuff? How do we view our possessions? And, and are, are our desires for stuff driving us closer to God or further away from God? And this is all stuff. Oftentimes, I'm very convicted by my desire to spend too much money on food. Because my heart loves food. Well, my heart doesn't necessarily love the food that I eat all the time, but you get what I'm saying. And then, if we take all of that into this next section, we have a very interesting situation. And he talks about anxiety. And he talks about not being anxious about what we eat and what we drink. So he takes this material concept and he expands it out. And he says, don't allow your eyes to produce anxiety in you about the future. Have an appropriate view of what is ahead. And he uses these imageries of, of birds and, and flowers and, and all of these wonderful things and that, that God, your Father... The Our Father that we said back at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer is going to take care of us. And may it be the case 
that some of the anxiety that we experience is a direct result of our overaccumulation of treasures on earth. So in essence, we have produced the anxiety ourselves by the things that have lured us away from God. I'm not real anxious when I drive the old Yukon. I'm anxious that maybe it might explode and start on fire. That's a different thing. But now that I got this new vehicle, I'm like, ooh, 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 ooh. Yukon, no anxiety at all. Just step on the gas and we'll get there. Deer's coming, wham, gotcha. That's why I got a ram bar. Peace out. It only happened once. Is it the case that some of the anxiety that we experience is our own fault? That we're anxious about tomorrow because we're, well, how am I going to do this? Or how am I going to take care of this? Or what if I lose my job because then I will not be able to pay for this? And all these other things. Mark Brackett, who's an emotions researcher, says, defines anxiety as this. He says, If you find out that there is an uneasiness about something that may happen in the future, it's anxiety. If there is a feeling of impending danger, it's fear. Now, what I want to be very clear on, and we'll wrap up with this, Jesus is not calling us to not feel the emotion that is anxiousness. Because anxiety or anxiousness is something that is innate within human beings. We experience anxiousness as part of who we are with all of the other myriad of emotions that we experience. What does he say? He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So this is about living today, living in the present today, and not seven days from now. And I know we, the planners in here are like, yeah, ugh, black marker this out. Ugh. This isn't about not planning. This is not about not preparing. This is about how we view who God is and what he's doing in our lives. And the last thing about this. Anxiety is a real thing, and it can be a, a devastating emotion. May we never, as followers of Jesus Christ, tell somebody who's battling with anxiety they are sinning, they are somehow less than, and if they would just pray to God hard enough, they would not have the problems that they have. Because that 
is typically said by somebody who's never dealt with anxiety. All right? You can go to your groups. <clears throat> 